You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. So in the last chapter, we finished talking about the problems that you get into in modern science, not recognizing their character, the specific mode of explanation. And in helping ourselves to understand that, we introduced very many things about God. And we saw in chapter four, a sketch of a proof of the existence of God. But there was many things that we said in the last chapter that need to be proved. And so we're going to spend some time on God himself. This will help deepen our understanding of the principles that we've gotten already by leading us into metaphysics, that highest plane of abstraction that we discussed in chapter 6. So let's start with one of the first questions. It's not actually the first, but it's one of the first questions in the Summa Theologiae, the great work of St. Thomas, theological work but packed full of philosophy. He always starts out with a question and then gives various objections and then gives the answer. In the section, this question on God, he says, It seems that God does not exist, for we should only take as many principles as we need to explain things. We shouldn't add them arbitrarily. It seems that all of them can be accounted for, because all natural things can be reduced to one principle, that's nature, and all voluntary things can be reduced to one principle, that's the human reason and the will. Therefore, there is no reason to suppose God's existence. Now, Carl Sagan, in the preface to Stephen Hawking's book that we've mentioned before, The Brief History of Time, gives a modern argument. The universe with no edge in space, no beginning or end in time, and nothing for a creator to do, is what Sagan says in his preface. Now, we know by now that this statement is obviously erroneous. We spent the whole of chapter 7 talking about the mistake of taking the imperiological, in this case the imperial metric, which is what Hawking is talking about, the formally mathematically, materially physical, as ontology, as real being, in a simple-minded way. This is what he's doing here, obviously. But also, underneath it, you can see a repetition of this sort of general argument that St. Thomas made, and that all men that thought about it a little bit might have come up with, in a question about asking themselves whether God really exists. And that is this idea that, why do you need this idea of a God? seems to be superfluous. And St. Thomas's response is to all this, in answering and sort of predicting Sagan's question, is, on the contrary, it is said in the person of God, and he quotes the Bible, I am who am. And we'll get back to this. This is basically a statement that God's essence is his existence. So St. Thomas then goes into five ways to prove the existence of God. The first way is the most manifest because it starts from something that's manifest to us, and that is change. We find change every place we look. Remember, the very act of sensing, which is the primary thing for us, I sense the coldness of the glass by way of a phantasm, but there has to be a physical change taking place as well. My hand cools down, the glass warms up. Even our very act of sensing involves change. The sun goes up, it comes down, the wind blows, it rains and then it's sunny. Neutrinos are constantly coming out from supernova stars. 
light is constantly coming out in spurts and sometimes in a more continuous manner. Change is happening all the time and we notice it. It's one of the very first things we notice. After there is and is, we notice that things change. What is change? Change is the process of reduction of potentiality to act. We saw many examples of that and we also saw an implication that the principle of contradiction brought us to, and that is nothing can change itself. Something cannot be in potentiality and in act in the same way and at the same time. Everything acts insofar as it is in act. So a separate changer must move, or mover if you'd like, must cause the change. Something cannot change itself. This creates a complicated possibility of things changing other things, which in turn change other things. We're not interested in what the actual structure of this complicated net is right now. Scientific investigation of a more specific type is. But right now we're interested in the, only the general sort of topology of the thing. And there seems to be three possibilities for this topology. You could go on to infinity with having a bunch of one cause causing another thing. Or you could have a circle where you have, say, three items this one causes that one, this one causes that one, and in turn causes the other one. Or it has a beginning, not necessarily in time. We saw that the Big Bang Theory, for example, does not prove that the universe had a beginning in time. You'll often hear it said it's a mistake of the first rank. And those seem to be the three possibilities. In fact, there's only one of those possibilities that's real. There's no other possibilities. And so, well, let's investigate and find out which one's are true and why. Can we go on to infinity? Well, no. And I think a good image to take as a crutch, remember always in philosophy, when you're dealing with these things that have to do with the mind, you have to come back to the mind, but you can start with an image if you realize that the image is only an aid, not the thought itself. Imagine a chain hanging from the sky, and you were to try to explain why that chain is hanging there. Well, you could just say there's more and more links up there, but sooner or later you have to hang it on something. Or you have to explain it by gravity or some other cause that is making it hang. Another example is a lawyer who's trying to prosecute a client could make one bad argument, he could make another bad argument, and so on and so forth, but no matter how many bad arguments he makes, it doesn't equal a good argument. Even an infinite number of bad arguments would not make a good argument that could prosecute his case. And similarly, even an infinite number of loops added to this chain will not explain why the chain is hanging. In the same way, an infinite number of changers does not explain why anything is changed. You've just pushed off the answer to the problem. So that eliminates going to infinity. Going to infinity just pushes your question out to infinity and so sort of subjectively you feel like it's far away so you don't have to worry about it but it's still out there. The circle is the next one we'll consider and remember we said if you have a circle of things say three things one thing causes this thing that thing causes the other thing and comes back and causes the first well we still have not accounted for the change that is occurring in the whole. The whole is changing and there needs to be a cause causing this circle of changes. So there needs to be a cause coming from the outside to cause those changes. 
one is left with only one choice, and that is there must be a first mover. There must be a first changer that does not himself change. He is the cause of change, but is not himself caused. If this being is to be truly first, it cannot be changeable, because if it were to be changeable, then it would need, as I say, a cause outside of itself. Thus, it must have no potentiality of any type, that meaning even an essence existence potentiality. It must have no shadow of non-being. It must be pure act, and everyone will recognize this as God. The second way is similar, but more philosophically deep. It starts with the notion of cause, an efficient cause. So it's basically a similar argument, but stressing a different aspect, and that is the causality of the thing. Remember, the efficient cause is that which the agent that acts on a patient that causes a change. A baseball. You saw the baseball going across, and you knew that it had a cause for why it went in front of the camera. A meteor changes its velocity only because a cause acts on the meteor to make it change its velocity, cause such as gravity. The book you did your assignment in is only there because I wrote it. You know that. You know that there must be a cause. Everything proceeds from a cause. Nothing can be the efficient cause of itself because then it would be prior to itself. Again, the principle of causality. In the same way as the first proof, we have a network of causality that we've set up. Even an infinite number of causes would need a cause themselves because you would still have no causes in the system that can explain everything. And lacking a cause that's uncaused, you would have being that has no explanation for itself. So you would have causes that would need a cause that have none, therefore none of the causes would exist, but they do exist. So we must come to an uncaused cause that is ultimately responsible for all the causes. And this everyone recognizes as God. The third way is compelling to those with a mathematical mindset because it starts in a little different place. And the tendency in imperiometric thinking is to think everything is completely necessary. In this way, by Sagan's comment, they seek to obviate the need for God. And by the imperiometric theory, remember that's purely mathematical. So what they're trying to say is that the mathematics can sort of cause itself. But of course, something that has its own necessity, like what they might claim is a theory of everything, is necessary. And that has its own problems because, as we've seen, Godel's theorem says a system that's at least as complicated as arithmetic, and these things are much more complicated than arithmetic, cannot have even a proof of their own self-consistency. But let's assume that what they say is true, which it patently is not, then if it were, then this would be God, because this is what we mean by God as a being that has its own necessity. But being so empirometrically imbibed as scientists are, but to be honest, as all of us are being in a culture run by science, people can mistake this without realizing what they said is nonsense. The third way proceeds from contingency and necessity. We see things can happen the way they did, but they could have happened differently. Whatever happens, happened in a certain way, but it didn't have to happen that way. 
In other words, there's a certain possibility and a certain necessity in things. We find that, for example, an animal is born, but it also can die. Everything that we see around us is possible to not be. Now, let's assume that everything is like the things that we see around us, which is the atheist assumption. Then, if everything was possible to not be, then at some point, there would not be anything. And if there was not anything, well, then there never could be what there is. So, it's nonsense to suppose that all things are possible to not be. Thus, there must be something that necessarily exists. This being has in itself, not deriving it from anyone else, but giving it to everyone else, giving the necessity to everything else. This being we recognize as God. And as I say, the imperiometric tendency is to think of mathematics as having the necessity. And Hawking shows this in a statement that he makes. What breathes fire into the equations? He's asking, where does the existence come from? But a moment later, he lapses back into the imperiometric. Remember, the imperiometric is the mathematical, and it's the part of the mathematical that's the being of reasons. And so it's a very small part of inside your mind. But he lapses, nonetheless, back into this small area of his mind and says, perhaps the unified theory is so compelling that it brings about its own existence. That's crazy because the mathematics, our beings of reason, which we've seen, cannot exist outside the mind. And certainly they do not have their own necessity. One rebuttal came in thinking about this, when I started thinking about this about 20 years ago, shows you the dangers of an imperiometric thinking that gets habitualized in you. I said in answer to this when I first read it, well, perhaps the nature of nothing is to turn into something. Well, this is obviously absurd. If you have nothing, how can you get something? Well, the way you can do it is, if you're in the imperial metric system working with beings of reason, is that you start believing that nothing is a something, because you give it an annotative value as a being of reason. You don't make the distinction between a being of reason on the one hand and a real being on the other hand. And you do what we talked about in light and dark. You say that, well, dark, that's the absence of light, but light could be just the absence of dark. So you treat them like entities on their own terms, and you don't make the distinction saying, this is really a being of reason. Nothing can exist outside the mind. It's a being of reason that we have to use because of our weak intellect. Once one begins talking about essence, being is already there. If you're talking about the essence of a real being, being is already there. So, be careful about the power of the imperiometric in our scientific cultural milieu. It can dull one's sense of real being. So now we can move on to the fourth proof, which is based on a deep understanding of being. And it's helpful to understand this distinction between analogy and metaphor. And you've hopefully noticed that I've been using metaphor for most of the things we've been talking about. When I talked about the car, I called it a metaphor, not an analogy, because there is a philosophical distinction between these two words. A metaphor can aid the mind in seeing the right relationship between things, but they cannot be a proof or a disproof.
analogy thus is different from a metaphor. A metaphor, for example, St. Thomas flies to the answer like an eagle flies to the top of the mountain. There's a certain parallel relationships there, but they're not connected except by that loose parallel. And so you can't prove anything by that analogy. You can just help the mind think in its own sort of parallel fashion, completely parallel lines is what you might want to think of it as. Now to really understand this, let's break this down some into some more vocabulary. Univocal we've met before. What that means is a word has univocal, one voice, one meaning, sharply defined meaning. Equivocal, when you have a word that's used equivocally, it means two completely separated things. So to box can be to fist fight, or it can be just a container. Two completely different meanings. Analogy is a real proportion. So what's an example of an analogy? Let's take the word health. I can say medicine is healthy, urine is healthy, the urine is healthy, but each of these refers to a primary statement, the patient is healthy. Medicine is only said to be healthy to the degree that it aids the patient in becoming healthy. So if it's a bad medicine, then it's bad because it doesn't make the patient healthy. Urine is said to be healthy only to the degree that it indicates the patient is healthy. The first is the cause of the health, and the second is the result of health. Both tell something about medicine and urine in relation to the human person. So there's a real relationship. It's called a relationship of analogy, a relationship of proportion. You're saying something real, so with this type of relationship, you really can say something, prove something about the patient, for example. So analogy is a proportion of being. For example, we said the degree something is intelligible is the degree that it is. That's the statement of proportion or analogy. Another thing that shows this is substance is being, an accident is being, but they're being in an analogous way. Substance is a being that exists of itself, and accidents have to exist in a substance. In general, one can deduce something from the nature of cause and effect, for example. The cause leaves something in its effect, so you can deduce something from seeing the effect you can deduce something about the cause. So when you saw that baseball going across the room, you could deduce something about there was something causing that ball to start its motion. The fourth way depends on this analogy of being. And it has to do with the transcendentals. The intelligible, the beautiful, the unified, the good, and so on. And these, remember, we said being and its interchangeable partners Therefore, being is not a genus, and that's described in detail in the book. And all this means is that all things share these things. No one of them, in our immediate experience, has it in their perfection. One thing is good, another thing is good in a different way. And one person is good, another person is even better or worse. Things manifest diverse levels of these modes of being. They do not belong exclusively to the essence of any given thing or any group of things. No things we know directly have these transcendentals perfectly. To be concrete about this proof, we could go through each one of the transcendentals, but let's take one, goodness. It gives us an opportunity to learn more about goodness. And we're going to do even more in chapter 9.
we're going to need this in talking about the chapter titled Mathematical Morality. For now, note that evil is not the opposite so much of good. It's really just a privation. It means you have a good thing that's missing something that it should have. Careful again of this tendency of our minds because of our imperial metric and imperial schematic culture to identify evil as a thing. Evil is an absence. Like dark, dark is the absence of light. The blind man does not know dark because he does not know light. Dark is a being of reason, thing that cannot exist of itself that we use because of our weak intellect to understand and work with things and we need to drop it away when it's not useful. So in the same way, evil is not a thing. Note, something less good doesn't mean more evil. So this is what the difference between a privation is and just being less good. An atom is less good than a man, but that doesn't make an atom evil. And as long as the atom has all the things that it should have, then it will not be evil. So the degree something is good is the degree that it is. Nothing, again, is pure goodness in our immediate experience in our experience accessible through the senses, which is how our nature is, works, is knowing all things through the senses. Now, being either has its goodness from itself or from another. Both things lacking in some good, things that only share in goodness, things that are not perfect goodness, do not contain their reason for goodness. For a thing to contain the reason for its goodness, it must be goodness itself. Any lack in goodness implies an implicit reference to something that has that good. In other words, a comparison to something outside of itself, a reason, a cause, a being in another. Hence, we must come to pure goodness. By identical arguments, we say that this being must be pure being, pure intelligibility, purely one, having every perfection. In short, there must be a supreme being. This everyone will recognize as God. Now, since even pure existence of particular ways of being could not account for existence, they must have their cause in God as well. So you might say whiteness. Does this mean that there must exist pure whiteness? Well, whiteness has to exist in something else. But there does have to be this idea of whiteness somewhere to have its cause. And it's not God, but it must exist in God as an archetype. And this is where the Platonic system comes to the insights of Plato get their natural place. So St. Thomas puts the truths of Plato in their right place. And the way I say it is that the jewel of the king's crown is finally put on the crown where it belongs. So we see that the formal cause, the actuality which includes the essence and the accidents of things, need an ultimate formal cause. Remember the formal cause is that which a thing is. And the essence of things need to participate in that existence, capital E, to account for their existence. In short, all lesser beings manifest a perfection, the God's perfection in various ways, because they're nothing but sharing in that perfection. Now the fifth way, as you see, they start at a more abstract level as we move along. And by so doing, we learn more and we get more insights. Each proof stands by itself, but we're learning more as we move along. Now we're going to start from the order in the universe. And We've talked about this order, but let's use our rock example again. I throw that rock into the pond. If the conditions are the same, every time I throw that rock into the pond, 
it will do the same thing. Now, if the conditions are the same, for example, I light a candle, the match will light the candle, and it will proceed to melt the wax, and it will proceed to release carbon and hydrogen. Hydrogen will turn into water, as the experiment before, and this will happen every time given the conditions of the match and the environment are the same. And computers depend on this order. Maxwell's equations, for example, is a great example of this order. The equations are basically saying that given initial conditions of an electric field, a magnetic field, and charges, and so on, they will always do the same thing as described by the equations. And the hydrogen and oxygen gas, you put that heat to them or a flame, poof, you get water. Every time that'll happen. We do not have to say that everything is order. Note that we're not saying everything has to be order. We're only noticing that there is order. The order we see is nothing but the order of potency to act. Potentiality exists, remember, only in reference to actuality. There is an ordination. Remember, ordination derived from the word order of potentiality to act. Finality, or final causality, is what we're talking about here. Agents act towards an end. Again, we're not saying that this means that they have a conscious purpose. We'll come back to that. That's what your mind naturally jumps to in seeing and thinking that, well, that must mean they're intentionally doing this. No, we're not saying that, but your mind's natural tendency to jump there is not wrong. We'll see how it makes sense in a second. Agents action towards an end on the part of, say, this spark, or in our case, the heat, causing the gas to explode and turn into water or spark in gasoline that makes the combustion engine work. These things are always ordered to act in the same way every time. Ordination, again, implies foreordination. They're ordained to happen before they happen. Given the conditions, they'll act that way. But things cannot be ordained before they happen unless somewhere they are ordained to happen. They cannot be foreordained in the things themselves because then it would violate the principle of causality. They would be giving something they don't have. Now, they cannot exist in physical things otherwhere, or they can, but that just pushes the problem back. Because then that, just a new thing, to have to have an ordination someplace else. Now, you could push it back to a particular intellect. But if this intellect that's ordaining, that's saying, okay, this is what's going to happen. But if this intellect is itself subject to an end outside of itself, then you have an ordination there that must be explained, that end outside of the intelligent being. We must then come to a being who is pure intellection directing and providing the coordination of things, but not subject to final causality outside of himself. No end outside of himself. He must be pure intellection, pure intellect. That's the proof we saw now filled out, the one we saw in chapter 4. We used intelligibility instead of goodness there. Five proofs overviewed. The first one leads us to God as pure act. Then we get to God as an uncaused cause. The third one gives God as a necessary being. The fourth one, the supreme being. The last one, pure intellect. Each proof is sufficient, but deeper understanding follows. The first one says that God is pure act, being himself who causes all motion and all being. God provides the act of being, the to be, for all things. Being himself is the source of all being. So all being is held in existence by 
the being of God, the necessary being of God. That's removed. And just like the premise of an argument being removed, the thing is removed. The second one, the uncaused aspect of God, clears up the question, who made God? Nobody can make God because then you wouldn't be talking about God. He has no cause. He's uncaused. With these proofs, we begin to see the metaphysical truth that essence and existence are separate in all things. All things but God have this relationship of potentiality to act. The potentiality is its essence, and its existence does not necessarily have to be associated with that essence. The third proof, we saw that God is a necessary being. All other essences are not necessary. That is why they require God for their continued existence. Even an angel has an essence that's separate from its existence. The fourth proof brings home the point that all that is good, true, beautiful, intelligent, harmonious, unified, have their source in God. Remember, to the extent that these things are good, true, beautiful, is to the extent that they exist. So every real thing comes from God. Fifth brings home the providence of God. We see that all things must come in existence by the power of God. Hence, even if the universe were not created in time, it would be continually created in the sense of brought forward from nothing by God. God does not create in time. God creates time. This is the fallacy, one of the fallacies you get tied up into if you try to use imperiometric science, imperiological science, as your mode of proof. We really got to get away from that because this is the source of a lot of our problems, trying to take the imperiometric as a substitute for the base that the imperiometric depends on because the imperiometric is, in the end, a tool for understanding the what of things. As we said before, if you don't think about the what of things specifically, if you don't do it intentionally, you're going to do it unintentionally, and you're not going to have a clear thought out philosophical base. You're going to end up with contradictions because you will leave that part incohate. Now we can see that God can carry out all the actions we ascribe to him in the preceding chapters. Matter of fact, he has to be the one to create an immaterial thing like the substantial form of man because he is the only one that can bring being into existence. We can make things, but that's from being that's already there. Only he can bring new being into existence, and he has to hold it in existence because he provides the necessariness of the contingent. The physical universe is a unity of form matter composites. In short, Matter is God's way of creating a radically interdependent world. Any particular part can be whatever another part can be. Each part can affect the other. And we'll talk about the part of men and angels later. We haven't talked about whether angels exist yet. We're going to see that they do from an argument that I'll make that it won't be a complete proof like what we're talking about here, but it will be fairly convincing. So we clearly see the universe is not God. It is not necessary. And we saw this is the fourth thing that science, including modern science, needs in the culture to help it from making mistakes like not recognizing the importance of doing experiment. If you think the world's necessary, what happens is you think a priori thinking can figure it out. So you go in your room, you don't do any experiments, you just think about it. And this would be pantheism. And Again, this pantheism, which is a natural tendency of paganism, is what caused the false starts in many cases of science in other cultures where they would get a really smart guy and he would do a few things and then the culture just didn't support it and there wasn't fertile enough ground and it would die. 
what Stanley Yaki calls stillbursts of science. Einstein asked whether God could have made a different universe. The fifth proof shows that God has no end, outside of himself, that is, and therefore no compulsion. So he didn't have to make the universe the way it is. The universe is non-necessary. Why did God create? Well, all agents, as agents, act to give actuality to potentiality. In general, we see that nature of being, that is goodness, is to be diffusive of itself. The nature of goodness is to give. A good man is recognized by his magnanimity, his largesse. And his largesse means that when he gives, it diminishes himself little. Perfect goodness, of course, is changed not at all by giving. God creates because that's the way goodness is. Again, we said goodness is primary, so we can describe it, and we can notice that this is the way goodness is. Goodness is diffusive of itself. So we now, with all this background that we've had built up over these last lectures, we can see that God's essence must be his existence. Otherwise, it would be possible for him to not exist. He is essence. He is who is. Existence. He is existence. More than one God, somebody might say? Well, no. Because remember, immaterial things are only distinguished by what they are, by their essence. If there were two gods, let's just hypothesize, for them to be different, one would have to have something the other did not, which means that one would be lacking, which means that one would not be God. The pre-scientific consideration of the proofs are done spontaneously. These proofs are kind of always in the back of your mind in various ways, depending on how much cultural influence has dampened your spontaneous action of your reason. But they're incohate, even when they're there. And the whole process that we're trying to do here in the science before science is make all that rigorous. But you can see it even in a, someone immersed in the imperial metric like the great physicist John Wheeler who, by the way, is sort of my grandfather in physics because he was the advisor of my former advisor. And he, by the way, is the people that he advised have really contributed lots to physics. For one, Richard Feynman was one of his. Another one you might have heard of, Kip Thorne, was also one of his. My advisor, Dmitry Christodoulou, is, is also one of the great contributors to Einstein's theory. Why does the universe fly, he says. In other words, there's these equations. What makes the equations true? What makes them actually exist in some way? They've come across the fact that the existence of things is not in the idea of it. So this brings us back to St. Anselm. We talked about him in the second chapter in the first lecture argued that the existence of God is self-evident. He argues that the supreme being cannot be truly supreme unless it exists in reality as well as in thought. And his argument goes as follows. This is why he claims it's self-evident. And by self-evident, he means not needing a proof. Compare a being, he says, that exists in your mind, but not in reality, with one that both exists in your mind and in reality. And he says, well, notice the one that just exists in your mind. Well, that can't be God because it's not supreme. It doesn't include everything that which greater than nothing can be conceived would be. Because I can conceive of a greater being 
And that is a being that not only exists in my mind, but one that exists in reality. Does this say that you cannot deny the existence of God? In other words, that it's like the principle of contradiction. It's self-evident to us. Well, no. The problem is where you start. We have to start with changeable being because we get things through our senses. To start with an idea and proceed to the existence is backwards. We have to judge from what we know to exist and deduce from that the things that exist. Even the idea of God cannot prove the existence of something, cannot contain the actual existence of something. Just because they have the idea of something doesn't mean it actually exists. Yet there is a force, a considerable force to this argument. Many find, where does that force come from? Well, for one thing, God's existence in and of itself is self-evident. If we really knew God the way he is, we wouldn't be able to deny it. But the point is, for us, it's not self-evident. And St. Thomas points out that the fact, for example, that the angels are different species is self-evident. That no angel can be the same species is self-evident. But it's not self-evident to the person that's uneducated in philosophy. You have to know the terms. And we do not know God directly. We only know him through his creation. But the point is that our minds cannot rest in the contingent. We notice the contingent being, and our minds spontaneously, infrascientifically, do this work and come to the idea of God. And the idea of God is then implanted in our mind incohately right from the beginning of a process of our reasoning. We notice contingent being, and we notice that everything can't be contingent. There has to be a permanent being, and that thought gets lodged in the back of our mind. And this is where the force of the proof comes from. And some argument starts at the conclusion that we've already got in our mind and then works backwards. So it's a backwards proof. So this is where its force comes from. It comes from the infrascientific realization that contingent being alone is irrational. We have one objection to consider left, but in the end, the only objection that can be raised that has any force to the existence of God is the problem of evil. If God is infinitely good, why is there evil? This is actually the first objection raised by St. Thomas in his Summa Theologica. We reserved it for here because it leads naturally into our next topic. Now the point here is that the proofs go through despite our difficulty. The proofs are true. We know that God exists. We've proved it five different ways. So we just have a problem to figure out now. We must affirm God is pure goodness, but how does it all work? And we have to, again, have humility here because we don't know everything, and we have to try to figure out what we can know, keeping in mind our own limits. But once we know something, we know it. And that's the thing to keep in mind in all of philosophy. We must attempt to understand the best we can, remembering that he is infinite. We expect to gradually increase our understanding. A complete understanding will always be beyond our grasp because an infinite thing cannot be contained in a finite thing. But we can understand it at a deep level, and let's start that understanding process. Evil comes in two types, physical evil and moral evil. Let's define physical evil. Physical evil is when a material thing is absent, something that is proper to its nature. And we already saw some examples, an animal missing a limb or one of its eyes, or you could think of an apple that's eaten out by worms, or the death of an animal or in a plant. Now, 
we can explain these things because they do not have ultimate value in themselves. Each individual of an ontological species of animal is part of that species and only exists for the sake of the species, not for the sake of the individual. The good of the species is the ultimate good in that case. So there might be, for the preservation of the species, a reason for a particular animal to die so that the rest of the species can continue. So that larger good is the reason for that apparent evil, but in the larger scheme, it's a good. Even more so with lesser beings such as plants, can you say such things. What about the problem of evil, though, in human beings? Innocent children can be shot in their schools. This certainly cannot be explained by the good of the species. We're dealing with a qualitatively different species now. Each human being is of infinite value because of the nature of a human being having an immaterial substantial form. Because of this nature, no human being can be used as a mere tool for the good of another without creating an absolute evil for which God would be ultimately responsible for, as the act of everything. We must then say that God does not ordain these things, but only permits them. And since he permits them, he must permit them for the good of those undergoing that physical evil. Now, this is a tough statement, but we're left with it. But remember, a finite lifetime out of an infinite eternal lifetime, which the immortal substantial form has because it cannot die, makes it way out of proportion to put too much emphasis on an evil in that small span of time compared to the infinite. Nonetheless, we see something not complete. We will have to leave this answer in a rudimentary but inescapable form. God allows evil that good may come of it. So what could create such an odd situation where evil exists? Only God making creatures so like himself that they can will what they want, in other words, free will. Such creatures can choose contrary to the orders established in things. This is moral evil, evil in the most general sense. Men can choose to ram two jet planes into a World Trade Center and kill thousands of people. Man can choose that. However, there is a problem even here with the evil attributed to the man's free will. Some evil cannot be explained by man's inhumanity to man. For example, a child born lame or a woman who gets breast cancer very young and dies a painful death. It seems then we're left with no choice but finding to postulate other free agents. We're not saying that there aren't intermediate causes such as DNA damage and so forth. We're not saying that. But we're saying in the end there must be responsibility for this evil. And to account for this evil, we have to postulate, or it seems we have to postulate, other beings, other free agents. And we have one at hand, the angels. The angels, having free will, having an intellect, and therefore the appetitive power that comes with every form of knowledge, would have a free will. And they would have a choice to make. And they could also choose against the created order. So further note, just in corollary to this, in buttressing it, that this makes sense that we would have a diverse order of beings in the universe. Remember, the universe includes all essence, existence composites, not just the material ones. We have quarks, electrons, worms, all kinds of species of animals, millions apparently of different species of animals. It would make sense to have some species of immaterial beings as well, rather than just having one, which would be man. So it is certainly reasonable to think that God has chosen to create a full chain of being. And the evidence forces us to conclude it, or seemingly so. But it's an interesting 
forcing because it's by the evil that they do that we come to know that they must be around. So this is an argument, a plausibility argument, very strong plausibility argument for the existence of angels. And they then would be behind, way behind in the remote causes of these things that we talked about, these human evils that cannot be explained by man's inhumanity to man. So now the question of moral evil in general makes us ask, what should we do with what we've learned? We've learned a lot of things in the pure sciences, and what should we do with them? And this brings us to the second science. Remember in that chart, there was the pure sciences, the top level ones, and then the applied ones. What do I do with what I know? And in particular, we're interested in here in studying the science before science, is how then should we do science? Before turning to this action, let's note that the proofs of the existence of God can be rejected in only one way. As Jacques Maritain says, quoting Gary Gou Lagrange, the mind has no other choice than the alternatives between the one true God and radical irrationality. So next we'll talk about morality. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.